Father, what a privilege it is to celebrate another Advent where we remember the old, old truth, the beautiful reality that Christianity is separate from every other religion in this way, that you're not a God who tells us, here's the path to make your way up to me, but that you're the God who has come down to us to live among us, but not just to live among us, to suffer like we suffer, to be tempted like we're tempted, to experience loneliness and anxiety, to experience poverty, to experience the intense feeling of what it's like to be misunderstood by almost everyone who knows you, to experience being betrayed by friends, by family, by having everyone turn their back on you. Jesus, this all happened in the incarnation. And it's instructive for us today because we're all walking through various things and we know people who are walking through things that Jesus, we're told in Hebrews chapter four, you're a great high priest because of the incarnation who understands what we feel because you've gone through what we've gone through. You weren't just God who came to live here. You were actually man who felt, who was tempted. Which means, Jesus, we have a high priest that we can bring everything to. That's what Advent reminds us. We have a God who understands. And so, God, we have needs in our own hearts. We have needs in our families. Maybe that we've felt even more particularly over the last few days being in close contact. We have needs in our neighborhoods and with our friends and with our workplaces. And so we take just a few seconds before we open your word to unload our burdens onto you, Jesus, our high priest who understands our needs and doesn't just understand but has the power to meet them. And so here are prayers for ourselves and our friends. God, the gospel and the incarnation is also an invasion. It's an invasion of light into darkness. It's an invasion of truth into a dark world. And what we need right now as we open your word is an invasion, a penetration of the truth right down to our very souls. Because we need the gospel again. We need the truth of what Jesus has done for us again. And we need strength and faith for the journey ahead. We can't do it on our own. That's part of the reason we gather here week by week to encourage each other and remind each other we cannot do this alone. We need the spirit who's with us. We need community who surrounds us. And we need, God, your word, which instructs us and helps us and gives us courage. And so would you do those things as we open it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are going to be in Galatians chapter 3, 
So if you have a Bible or a phone, open up there. Or whatever you brought with you that might have the Bible on it, open up. Kendall, I don't know what you guys bring to church. You're going to want to have it in front of you. It'll also be on the screen. We're only going to read verses 1 through 10 together. I think it's printed uh, through 14 in your bulletin, but we'll stop at verse 10 today. You know, we spent so much time getting through the Old Testament, and now we are flying through the New Testament. Somehow we're in Galatians. Here we go. Galatians 3, 1 to 10. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Jen and I are doing a reading challenge this year. I can't remember if I've told you all about that or not, but it basically gives you all these different categories of books that you should read, and the point is to get you out of your normal rhythm of the things you would read. I would read only murder, mystery, things, and theology. That's like all I would read. And so it's trying to move you outside of that. So it'll say something like, read a book by someone written in the 1800s, or read a book by someone from a perspective that you would disagree with. Or read a a book with a person's face on the cover. It's got like all sorts of categories. I'm not a slave to it though because I came to a category which was read a book by Jane Austen. Which I was excited about and then I started. Uh, I don't know how many pages I made it in but I had no idea what was going on. And I thought there's freedom in the Christian life. I'm not going to be a slave to this reading challenge. Right? So I quit Jane Austen and went to the next category which was read a book with a two word title. Uh, And I don't know how I got here, honestly, but I found this book, Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor. I had never read any Flannery O'Connor before, uh, but I found this book, Wise Blood, and it was amazing. So let me just give you the plot very quickly. Uh, Flannery O'Connor writes Wise Blood. It's about this man named Hazel Motes. Uh, If you're looking for a good name for your son, Hazel is an option. If there are Hazels in the room, we're glad you're here. So Hazel Motes is this guy who grew up in this very religious household. His grandfather was a preacher, and he knew from the very beginning his life was set out for him. He was going to be a preacher like his grandfather. His grandfather had instilled in him uh, this deep knowledge that we're hopelessly lost without Christ, that we need redemption. The gospel's our only hope. He believed it. He knew what he wanted to do. And then he got drafted into World War II. And because of his experience in World War II... Uh, he became uh, an atheist. 
And he decided, I'm still going to be a preacher, but what I'm going to do is preach the opposite message that I was going to preach before. What I'm going to do is go out on the streets and I'm going to found the church that he calls uh, the Church of Christ without Christ, is what he calls it. The point being, we're not hopelessly lost. We're all pretty good on our own. Jesus was a liar. There's no need for redemption at all. Get over it, people, and just go live your good lives. That was his goal. I tell you all of this uh, just to read you this one quote from the book that I read, and it struck me as I was studying Galatians 3 uh, for us to look at together, and I thought, This is a perfect summary of what Paul is saying to the Galatians in chapter 3. Listen to what Flannery O'Connor says about Hazel Motes. There was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. In other words, Hazel Motes spent his whole life so bitter at Jesus and Christianity, he thought, I'm going to figure out whatever it takes to avoid all of that altogether. And his method was, if I just avoid sin, if I just live a good moral life, I've got no need of Jesus, I'll be fine on my own. And Paul is writing to the Galatians to tell them, it's possible to start well with Jesus, but somewhere along the way, Somewhere along the way to get into this mode of operation where you're trying not to rely on Jesus more, but to rely on Jesus less. To figure out ways to do life where you don't need the presence of Jesus at all. And I just wonder, if you take a step back and you look at your life, is that in any way true? That you started well with Jesus, but your goal since then in various ways is to rely less on Jesus, to need him more, to figure out ways to avoid him altogether. And there are so many ways that we can do that. Let me just catch us up on where we are in Galatians and give us some context. The church in Galatia has been infiltrated by these false prophets named the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were basically saying this, yes, you need Jesus, nothing wrong with Jesus, we all love Jesus. That's how you have to start. But if you want to make any progress in the Christian life at all, if you want to grow, if you want to change, if you want to have spiritual power, if you want to get to the next level with God, you have to leave Jesus behind, stop looking at Jesus, and start working it out on your own. Start doing your part. In other words, what Jesus has done for you needs to be supplemented by what you can do for Jesus. And so for them, the Judaizers were saying, start with Jesus, that's great. Now you need to be circumcised, even if you're a Gentile. Sorry, older men. Now you need to start following dietary laws. Now you need to start uh, following these certain holy days. You need to do these things if you really want to be right with God. You've got to supplement The whole thing. And Paul's whole goal in Galatians is to say this. If you fall in any way into that line of thinking, that your standing with God is Jesus plus anything. We're not talking about some matter of agree to disagree. We're not talking about two different versions of Christianity, two different denominations. What we're talking about is a whole nother gospel. 
Paul says, if you want to believe what the Judaizers are telling you, that you need Jesus plus anything else, you are cut off from Christ. You have no part in him. It's that serious. And it's that serious for us. We would do well to listen to the warning of Galatians because Paul is not writing to people outside of the church and telling them they're cut off from Christ. You realize that, right? He's telling the church, you better be careful what you believe about the gospel. You better be careful what version of Jesus you're following because the reality is uh, nobody in here is um, thinking they need to add the Jewish holy days or the dietary laws. Keto is not a dietary law. That's a different thing if you're confused about what we're doing. Uh, n- nobody thinks that, right, that you have to do that. But the reality is, it's not that for us, but for every single one of us, there's a never-ending pull in the human heart to think we surely have to contribute something. Our standing with God has to somehow, at some small margin, be dependent on what we bring to the table, right? We are naturally allergic to grace. If we went and got one of those allergy tests where they prick your back, every single one of us would come back allergic to grace. We don't like it. We want to earn it. We want to perform. And so this is a great warning for us. We all have a little hazel motes in us to try to live life independent of Jesus and to avoid needing him altogether. So I just want to look at two points for us this morning, two points in Christianity. Number one, how do we begin? And number two, how do we make progress? How do we begin and how do we make progress? Look back at verse one. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So just imagine this scenario. This is a letter that Paul would have written to a whole region of churches, and they would have passed it along and read it. And it's so fun to get mail, isn't it? That's what's so great about Christmas. Like, you get mail all the time with people's Christmas cards, and their kids are doing better than your kids, and like the whole thing, right? And so it's fun to get mail. All, you know, you open it, your name's on it. So imagine the Galatian church receiving this letter. Who's it from? Who's it from? It's from Paul. Like, oh, I miss Paul, our biggest fan. He preached the gospel. We became Christians under Paul. Fond memories of Paul. What's he writing about? Read it, read it, read it. So one person gets the letter. They open it up in front of the church, and they get to this part. And uh, J.B. Phillips translates it this way. Chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, surely you cannot be so idiotic. Paul is a firm believer that harsh words create soft people. (laughs) And so he writes to them, and you already know the problem. The false teachers have come in to lead the people, to mislead the people. So what does Paul do to fix it? He takes them back to the beginning. Sometimes when we get really off in life, you ever have those moments where you wake up one day and you think, how did I get to this place? Sometimes what we have to do is retrace our steps and go back to the beginning and think, where did I get so off path? So the other day, um, it was when it was really cold. Now it's like 70 again. But remember a couple weeks ago when it was really cold, it was like outside. And so I went outside and turned uh, my car on 
to get it warm inside, right? Because I'm a diva. And so I wanted the car warm. So I, put, I took my coffee out there and put it in the car. I was taking the kids to the grandparents' house. So Jen brought the kids out and put them in the car. And I went back inside to get something else. Our one-year-old was crying. So she gave her the keys to the car. You can see where this is going. And uh, right as Jen was shutting the door and I shut my door, she pushed the, the one-year-old pushed the lock button on the keys. So both of our kids, and more importantly, my coffee, are locked inside the car at 8 o'clock in the morning. So we spent the next 30 minutes training our three-year-old to pull the lock button, which is harder than it sounds. Pull the lock button. Don't push it. Don't push it. She's crying. You know, like, no, pull it, pull it. So we, 30 minutes. She finally pulls it. You know what happens? The alarm goes off. So now, it's 8 o'clock in the morning, my kids are trapped in the car, I've got no coffee, the alarm is going off, Uh, neighbors are like coming out of their houses, like, it's this whole scene, and Jen and I looked at each other and just started laughing. Because you have those moments where you're like, how in the world did we get in this place? And we just recounted the events as AAA came to rescue us, of all the possible things that went wrong to get to that moment, because sometimes you've got to go back to the beginning. And so Paul takes the Galatian church all the way back to the beginning to figure out where they got off. And look at what he says in verse 1. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now that is really interesting. Because Jesus died somewhere around 33 AD. And uh, this is around 48 AD. So about 15 years later. But a bigger deal is, this is 500 miles away from Jerusalem in modern day Turkey. None of these people saw Jesus get crucified. None of them. But Paul says, it was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. What does he mean? A, A more helpful translation might be, the crucifixion of Jesus was vividly portrayed for you. What Paul means is simply this. There's a moment in Christianity for every single one of us where we know the facts of Christianity, but then there's a moment where the Spirit comes and the eyes of our hearts are enlightened and we see it. We see it. I was with a um, former student this week that grew up in our youth group. And I was talking to him, and I have these conversations a lot, which is a little bit of shot to my pride, but we try to like pour the gospel into our kids like over and over again, middle school and high school, we tell it to them over and over again. And this student looked at me and they said, you know what, I never like heard the gospel until I went to this new church after I left Mitchell Road, and they told me about justification, and that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. And it's like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? So like, remove the pride for a second. This is great. God's doing good work, right? What happened in that student's life? They had always heard the truth. They knew the truth, but now they saw it. Now it became real to them. It went from some facts to something that totally transformed their life. And that's what it looks like to begin in Christianity. Uh, Nobody knew this better than Paul, right? As we're reading through Acts, I mean, that story is just amazing. We cannot let it grow old, but we we read in Acts chapter 8 
that uh, Paul oversees the, the stoning of Stephen, right? He is, he is ravaging the church, dragging Christians, men and women, out of their houses, throwing them into prison, overseeing people being killed. And he's on the road to Damascus to add another moral notch to his belt of righteousness, serving God, killing the church. And what happens? Jesus vividly portrayed to him, meets him in a vision, And at that exact moment, the gospel becomes real to Paul. He knew everything there was to know about Jesus, everything. But then he saw it, and it transformed his heart. And what he realized in that moment was, all of the religious striving that I've been doing all of my life to serve God counts for nothing. All that matters, all that makes me right with God, is Jesus in my place. Jesus' righteousness given to me. All of my righteous is like a pile of poop, Paul says. It matters for nothing. He finally sees the truth of the gospel and it becomes real to him. Something life-changing happens when we finally realize what the gospel actually means, that we don't bring anything to the table. And it's all about Jesus. Listen to what John Stott says. He says, The gospel is not good advice to men, but good news about Christ. Not an invitation to us to do anything, but a declaration of what God has done. Not a demand, but an offer. In other words, the gospel is a free gift. It's not dependent on your performance. It's all about Jesus. And Paul is such a beautiful picture of that. Just imagine this scenario. This man who was killing Christians, ravaging the church, his life is transformed. 30 years later, he's killed. And what happens in that moment? Who is less deserving of heaven than Paul? He murdered Christians. But then Paul enters glory to the applause of the very men and women he martyred. Can you imagine that scene? That's how the gospel works. Paul showing up and saying, all I have to offer is nothing. It's all about Jesus. And those same men and women say, yes, it's all about Jesus. He's the only way we made it here. Let's enjoy our Savior forever. That's how the gospel works. And so uh, Paul wants to make this immediately clear to them so that they cannot miss it. So he goes in verse 6 to Abraham, which to us is a a really interesting transition. Why does Paul all of a sudden bring up Abraham in uh, verse 6 and talk about him basically the rest of the text that we read? What Paul's doing is this. The Judaizers are saying, hey, don't forget about Moses. What he said still applies. We still got to follow the law. We still got to get circumcised. That all still matters. We got to add it to our record, right? And Paul's basically saying, hey, what about, um, what was that guy's name before Moses? Abraham. Let's talk about Abraham for a second. He, He quotes from Genesis 15, which was a long time ago in your Bible reading, but you remember this, right? 
Genesis 15, God um, is having this conversation with Abraham, and Abraham says, hey, I'm super old. God's brutal with Abraham. He's always saying in the Bible, and Abraham was very old, and Sarah was very old. You know, it's like over and over. He's like, we get it. So Abraham's very old. He's having this conversation with God, and he's like, hey, God, I know what you said. My offspring is numerous as the sand and all that, but um, I guess it's going to be Eliezer of Damascus, this like slave guy in my house. We'll do it through him. Is that going to work for you? And God says, um, I want you to look at the stars. This was pre-pollution, right? Look at the stars. You try to count them before you fall asleep. Can't do it, right? That's how numerous your offspring is going to be. And then Paul quotes from Genesis 15 and says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What do we learn in that moment? We learn that Christianity is not a religion of performance. It's a religion of promise. Abraham could do nothing to change this situation. He could not get Sarah pregnant. He could not change what was happening in her womb. He could not bring this about on his own. All he could do was trust God, and God counts that faith as righteousness. You could translate it. He credits righteousness to his account. What does that mean? What's that mean? I mean, think about this. Is Abraham any different uh, from 10 seconds before this moment to 10 seconds after? No. He still struggles with the same sin. He's still got the same problems. He's still throwing his wife under the bus at every possible opportunity, right? He's still that guy. So what changes in his life? All that changes is that he has faith and God says, you are right with me on the basis of that faith. And this is where Christianity and every other religion is different. Every other religion says, you can know you're right with God by looking at your moral record. And if it stacks up, you can believe that God accepts you. And if it doesn't stack up, you can know that God doesn't accept you. But Christianity says, it is possible, because Christianity is a religion of promise, that your faith is in Christ and you've still got all sorts of problems. But you're still righteous in God's sight. (laughs) at the same time. So don't start looking at your moral record and go, I am a disaster. God cannot be pleased with me. Instead, look at your faith and the object of your faith and say, it's all about Jesus that makes me right with God. I heard um, one pastor put it this way as I was studying this week. He says, what Paul's basically doing here is saying to the Judaizers, hey, why don't you have a conversation with Abraham real quick? You guys want to go on like a little uh, date and talk? So imagine the Judaizers who are saying you need to be circumcised and follow the holy laws and all that. Imagine them talking to Abraham. So they come to Abraham and they're like, we heard that God just said you were righteous. That's amazing. Um, How's it going with the holy days? You following the laws? You you doing all that? And and, uh, Abraham's like, God hasn't given me any law to follow yet. There is no Moses yet, right? They're like, okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But you're circumcised, right? I mean, you have to be, to be righteous, like you have to be circumcised. And Abraham's like, I've never heard that word in my life. That's two chapters later. He doesn't say that. They're not chapters yet, right? You see what's happening? Paul's saying to the Judaizers, God gives Abraham righteousness on the basis of what? Faith alone. 
He, he's not been able to even do anything yet besides trust God. He doesn't even know what step to take. And so the question is, has that happened for you? Has that happened for you? Has the cross been vividly portrayed for you in a way that it goes from some facts about Jesus to something that transforms your life because you realize, I bring nothing to the table. It's all about Jesus, and faith in him makes me right with God alone. So that's how the Galatians began, but then verse 2 tells us they get hypnotized by this powerful idea. The Judaizers tell them if they ever want to make progress in the Christian faith, if they ever want to live with spiritual power, they got to stop now looking at Jesus and start looking at themselves, which brings us to this second point, how we make progress. We'll do this very quickly. This is a um, big question for us, right? I mean, how do we grow? How do we change? Don't you, we all want to change, right? How do we go from, yeah, God counts us as righteous in his sight to actually being righteous people? How do we do that? How do we stop finally blowing up in anger at the smallest thing? How do we finally gain some self-control? How do we finally move past our addictions and our idols? How can we stop being so grumpy all the time, (laughs) right? How do we change? And so the second thing Paul shows them in Galatians 3 is that the most likely reason we can't seem to grow is that we've fallen into the same trap that the Galatians have fallen into. And here's one way to summarize it. When it comes right down to it, we believe wholeheartedly that we're justified outside of our performance by faith alone, but the way that we're sanctified is by trying really, really hard. Now's our turn to step up to the plate, right? We put in the work. We start to do it. And Paul has strong words. Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul's point is that the way to grow as a Christian is the exact same way you became a Christian. And I want you to see that this is very serious. Because Paul says in verse 10 that if we live this way, if we think that we're justified by faith, but we're sanctified by trying really, really, really hard, that we are cursed. That's the word he uses. Cut off from Christ. Why? Because it shows we never got the gospel in the first place. We never realized that it was about us bringing nothing to the table and all about what Jesus does for us. And so if we want to make progress, we do it the same way we began. And to do it, we need to do three things. First of all, daily reliance. Daily reliance. We make progress by daily reliance. Um, I was struck by this moment as we were reading through the Bible that I think has got to be one of the most important moments in the New Testament that we never talk about. It happens at the end of Luke and at the beginning of Acts. This moment where Jesus is about to ascend to the Father. He's already risen from the dead. And uh, he's giving the the disciples final instructions. Now imagine, they've just seen Jesus rise from the dead. There is no more uh, motivational moment to talk about the gospel than when you've seen the risen Jesus, right? They've all of a sudden got boldness. They've got confidence. They've got a message to share. They are ready to go. And what does Jesus say to them? Don't you dare do a thing. Don't even leave this city until I send you the Spirit. 
that Jesus is saying that you cannot do anything with spiritual power unless you first wait for the Spirit to come and give you the ability to do it. And I want you to know that nothing has changed from that moment because Jesus would say to us, don't do a thing. Don't move a muscle in Christian striving unless you do it in reliance on the Spirit. Here's the tough question that we have to answer. The way that you're currently approaching life, does there even need to be a Holy Spirit? Does there need to be a Spirit? Or like Hazel Motes, have you figured out pretty well how to avoid Jesus altogether? And you, you know how to live the Christian life pretty well and to do the things that you're supposed to do. And you're not reliant on the spirit at all. Moment by moment, would you say that you're learning to live in a way that is spirit reliant or self-dependent? That's the question that we have to answer. And, and it's so subtle Because the actions look the same. We can teach Sunday school, preach sermons, feed the poor, evangelize the lost. We can do all sorts of good things. The question is, in your heart, is it self-reliant, making yourself more right with God or spirit-dependent, saying to God, I cannot do this outside of the resources provided to me in the Holy Spirit who lives in me. Um, the, I'm going to step on some toes very quickly uh, with a couple of things that we say that might be revealing in this area. Listen, listen to just a couple. My point in, in doing this is not um, to shame you or make you feel bad about using these phrases. Just think about the heart behind them and what we're uh, inadvertently maybe telling ourselves about our need for the Spirit. Here's some things we say sometimes. God helps those who help themselves, right? Figure it out. The whole point of the gospel is that God helps those who cannot help themselves, right? That's the whole point. Second, second one, work like it all depends on you. Pray like it all depends on God. I, I think this is, like a, um, this is like a good one in theory, right? That sounds good. Like if we live our life actually right that, like that, that would be great. But what we actually do is we work like it all depends on us and prayer is a last resort if we cannot figure it out on our own, Right? Last one, God will not give you more than you can handle. Man, I don't know about y'all. <laughs> like to wake up and love my family and die to myself and not be the most selfish person on the face of the earth is more than I can handle. I, I like cannot do that. Life already this morning has been more than I could handle. The good news of the gospel is not you have all the resources you need to handle life. The good news of the gospel is that life will constantly overwhelm you and God has given you through the spirit all the resources you need. And so uh, the first one is reliance. We need to close. So I'll just give you the last two very quickly. The second one is a growing need. Growing need. The subtle danger of the Christian life is that we come to faith and begin to grow We think that what should be happening is that we outgrow our need of Jesus. It's like little kids. Like I remember when my babies were first born. They couldn't verbalize this, but they knew everything is dependent on y'all. Really, Jen, but I contribute sometimes. Uh, 
everything is dependent on y'all, right? I cannot eat. I cannot do anything to keep myself alive without you. But then they start to grow up. And now um, it is an ultimate offense to my three-year-old that I would help her do anything, right? Buckle her seatbelt, like help her into the car. Anything is offensive. Let me do it myself. It is so easy to do that in the Christian life, to think that the way of Christian maturity is to need Jesus less, not more. But listen to Paul. Listen to how Paul talks about himself throughout his letters. First of all, in AD 55, he says he's the least of all apostles. That's pretty humble. Five years later, when he writes Ephesians, he says he's the least of all the saints. Two years later, when he writes 1 Timothy, he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. What's happening in Paul's life? He is growing in his knowledge of his need for Jesus. That is Christian maturity. That's how we make progress. Not that we need Jesus less, we need Jesus more. That's how we finally learn to change. And then lastly, we have to rediscover the gospel. Let me read you this long quote from Tim Keller, and we'll close here. He says, we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more, more advanced. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but the A to Z of Christianity. It's not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we all make progress in the kingdom. The gospel is the way we grow. It's the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier. It is very common in the church to think as follows. The gospel is for non-Christians. One needs it to be saved, but once saved, you grow through hard work and obedience. But hard work not arising from the gospel will not sanctify you. It will strangle you. All our problems come from a failure to apply the gospel. The main problem then in the Christian life is not that we have thought out the deep implications of the gospel. We have not used the gospel in in and on all parts of our lives. Most people's problems are just a failure to be oriented to the gospel, a failure to grasp and believe it through and through. Luther says, most necessary is that we know the gospel well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. The gospel is not therefore easily comprehended. Paul says that the gospel only does its renewing work in us as we understand it in all of its truth. All of us, to some degree, live around the truth of the gospel, but do not get it. So the key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal and revival is continual rediscovery of the gospel. So, your homework for this week. See Jesus crucified portrayed for you again. Believe the gospel again. It's not only how we start, it's how we make progress. Let me pray for us. Father, um, thank you for your word. Thank you that it changes us. Thank you that the spirit empowers it. And we pray, God, that we wouldn't fall into the Galatian trap of feeling like We start by faith, but then continue by trying really, really hard. But that today and every day forward, we grow in our need of Jesus and our awareness of that need. And that that need would be met by the beautiful gospel. Help us to believe it again, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. That we have a God who's come to us. 
We don't have a God who's asked us to work our way up to him. No, we have a Savior who's come to live the life we could not live, to die the death that we deserve to die, to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay. What, what an amazing reality. We pray that it never becomes old to us. That it never becomes old that you, Jesus, came and suffered in this life like we suffer. That you were tempted like we're tempted. That you experienced loneliness and anxiety. You experienced being misunderstood and abandoned. You knew what it was like to have friends turn their back on you, family to misunderstand you, and in many ways, God, Jesus, you were very alone on this earth. And because of all of that that you experienced, it means that we're not alone. That as we live this life, we don't have a great high priest, a savior, a king who doesn't understand what our life is like, but in every way knows. And so, Jesus, this Advent season, would you remind us that you understand our fears and our struggles? You understand our temptations and our pains. And many of us bring all, all sorts of things into this room this morning. Sickness, fear, anxiety, apathy, disappointment, discouragement, depression. And so, God, we need a Savior who sits at the right hand of God, who understands us, and who intercedes for us. And so, would you just hear us just for a few seconds as we Come and prepare to hear from your word. We bring our needs to you, our Savior who tells us that his burden is light and for us to cast all of our anxieties on him. And so hear us, hear us, Jesus, with all that's on our heart. The other thing that Advent reminds us of is that the incarnation is invasive. That Jesus, you were light come into darkness. You were truth come into a world of lies. You cannot come into our lives and leave us the same. And we're desperate not to stay the same. And so as uh, we come to your word and we hear from what you would have to say to us, God, pierce us right down to our very souls. Remind us of the beauty of the gospel again and again this morning so that we might trust more fully in Christ and our lives might more reflect his. And we pray it on his name. Amen. We are in Galatians chapter 3. <clears throat> it took us, uh, I don't know, three or four years to get through the Old Testament and we finally made it to the New and we're already in Galatians. So here we are, we're flying right through. Uh, if you haven't been going through scripture, reading through scripture with us, it's a great time to jump in. Uh, we are in Acts and jumping into some epistles along the way. So Galatians chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. Have it before you in some way. It's also on the screen. Galatians 3. O foolish Galatians. 
Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Jen and I and, uh, are doing a reading challenge this year. can't remember if I've told you all that already, but basically what it does is gives you different categories of books to read. And so it'll say things like, uh, read a book by someone who was alive in the 1800s and wrote something, or read a book with someone's face on the cover, or whatever it is. And the point is to get you outside of your normal uh, things that you would pick up and read, which for me would be like uh, true crime types. I would just read like every true crime book there ever was and like stuff about Christianity. It's like all I would read. So it's trying to push you outside of uh, those boundaries. I will say, though, uh, one of the categories that I came to last week was read a book by Jane Austen. Okay, I tried it. I did try. I made it like 15 pages in, no idea what was going on, and I realized there's freedom in the Christian life. I don't have to be a slave to the Bible or to the reading challenge. I do have to be a slave to the Bible. I don't have to be a slave to the reading challenge, right? I, so I, I bailed on Jane Austen. Sorry if that offends some of you. So the next category was read a book with two, a two-word title. And I don't know how I got here, but somehow I picked up and started reading Flannery O'Connor's book, Wise Blood. I'd never read anything by Flannery O'Connor before, but it was an amazing book uh, that I read through. And I just want to give you the plot of that book and read one line that she writes and show you how it applies to Galatians. So in Wise Blood, uh, Flannery O'Connor writes about this man, Hazel Motes. Great name for a son. If you're about to have a son, Hazel, that could work for you. Uh, This guy, Hazel Motes, he starts uh, his life in a Christian house. His grandfather is a preacher, and he knows his whole life he wants to be a preacher. He believes uh, the truth of the gospel early on, that he is separated from God by his sin, that he needs to be cleansed by a redeemer, and Jesus is that redeemer. His whole life is set up before him. He just wants to tell people about that. And then he goes to World War II. And his experience there, for whatever reason, uh, makes him bitter and antagonistic towards the gospel. So his whole life flips except for one thing. He decides, I'm still going to be a preacher, but I'm going to found the first church of Christ without Christ. And what I'm going to tell people, I'm going to every day stand up and tell people, you people that believe in Jesus are missing the point. Things aren't that bad. You're not that evil. You don't really need a savior at all. Just live a good life and you'll be fine. So he's still a preacher, but preaching the totally opposite message. I tell you all that that, to read this line to you from Flannery O'Connor, which I think is a great summary of Galatians 3. She says this, 
speaking about his transformation from an aspiring preacher to an outspoken atheist. There was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. The way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. In other words, his whole goal in life was to set his life up in such a way that he had no need of Jesus at all. And the way to do that for him was just to live morally, just follow all the laws, just do everything right. So if you don't sin, you don't have to turn to Jesus. You don't need him at all. We're all fine without him. And it's a great summary of Galatians chapter 3 for this reason. Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, and what has happened to them is they've all started well. They've all started with belief in Jesus, but somewhere along the way, they've started to try to live life apart from needing Christ. They've started to try to live life and set up life in such a way where they could do it all on their own. And so the question for you is simply this, is there any part of your Christianity that exists where you're trying to do it without Christ? Where you're trying to become less reliant on Jesus, actually, in the way that you live. It can happen very subtly, and it happens to the Galatians. And so it's a warning to us all. Just to catch us up on the context of the book, Paul's writing uh, to this group of churches in Galatia, and what's happened is this group of false prophets named the Judaizers has come in, and they said, it's fine that you started with Jesus. That's a good place to start. Now... Stop looking at Jesus and start looking at yourselves. It's time for you to contribute to the cause. Jesus got you going. He was a good foundation. Now what you need to do is contribute to your salvation. And in their context, what that meant was believing that Jesus isn't enough. What you need is Jesus plus obedience to the Jewish law. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow the holy days. You need to uh, follow the dietary restrictions. You need to do all of those things. The point that they're trying to prove is this. If you want to make any progress in the Christian life, you can't just keep looking at Jesus. He did everything he could do for you. Now it's your turn. Now it's your turn to bring something to the table. In other words, what Jesus has done for you needs to be supplemented by what you can do for Jesus. And Paul doesn't mix words. He says, if you want to believe that, if you want to believe that your standing before God is Jesus plus anything, this is not agree to disagree. This is not a denominational difference. That's a whole different gospel. That's a whole different deal. And if you think that Jesus plus something else makes you right with God, what you need to realize is that you're cut off from Christ. You have no part in him. It's that serious. And here's why it's that serious for us. Paul's not talking to people outside of the church, right? He's talking to people inside the church. People who have heard the gospel and believed it and started well, but somewhere along the way, they got off track. Somewhere along the way, they started to miss the whole point. And so it's a warning to us all. Now listen, I don't think any of you uh, are trying to add Jewish holy days 
or dietary restrictions to your uh, diet or whatever. That's not keto or any of those things you find on Facebook for losing weight. That's none of those things. Different thing, right? I don't think that's a danger for any of you. But you know what is a danger for us? There is a never-ending pool in every single one of our hearts that we have to be able to contribute to our salvation in some way, right? Surely we bring something to the table that makes us right with God. Surely we add to the equation. Our hearts are naturally allergic to grace. If you got one of those allergy tests, you know, where they prick you in the back a bunch of times, every single one of us results would say allergic to grace. We don't like it. We want to earn it. We want to contribute. It's in all of our hearts. And so this letter is a warning to us all. So just two points. What we're going to look at is in Christianity, how do we begin and how do we make progress? How do we begin in Christianity and how do we make progress? Look back at verse one. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, I want you to imagine this scenario, right? It's so fun to get letters, isn't it? Like, one of the best things about the Christmas season is uh, people from all over that you've known for your whole life send you letters with pictures of their families and all the best facts about their kids that say their kids are doing better than your kids, right? Like, that's so fun. We get those letters, like, every day in the mail. uh, And and it's fun to open letters. The church in Galatia, like, gets this letter from Paul. And imagine how pumped they are, right? Like, it's Paul, like Paul, our spiritual father, he preached the gospel to us, our biggest fan. He's probably writing to encourage to us. And then they get to this part in the letter of Galatians. Somebody's reading it out loud to the whole church. So imagine I got the letter from Paul. I'm reading it to all of you. And J.B. Phillips says that Paul says this to the Galatians in verse one. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Surely you cannot be so idiotic. Like right to the heart, right? Paul's a firm believer that harsh words make soft people. (laughs) And so he comes to them and he says, what are you guys doing? What are you doing believing these false teachers that have come in and misled you? So what does Paul do to fix it? What does Paul do to fix it? They've started well. They've gotten off track. How does he fix it? I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you wake up and you, and you think, how did I get to this place in my life? How did I get this far off track? Things started off so good. I had such good intentions, but I'm so far from where I once was. How do you get back on track? The best way to do it is to retrace your steps and go back to the beginning where you started. Um, we had a moment like that at our house a couple weeks ago. Remember a couple weeks ago when it was cold, that like two-week winter we had, and now it's 70 degrees again and all that? Well, it was freezing one morning, and so um, I was going to turn my car on to get it hot, so when I got in it, it was hot. I'm, I'm a diva, it's, you know, whatever. And so I went to my car and turned it on and put my coffee in the car. I was taking the kids to the grandparents, so Jen put both kids in the car, and our one-year-old was screaming, so she gave her the keys to the car to play with or whatever. You can see where this is going. Uh, I shut my door, Jen shut the kid's door, and somehow the one-year-old pushed the lock button on the car. So... Uh, here we are. Kids are locked in the car, which is a problem. Worse than that, my coffee's in the car. And so we're in a, we're in a bind. And so we spent the next 30 minutes trying to train our three-year-old how to pull the lock, 
pull the lock. Don't push it, pull the lock. She thinks we're mad at her and she's crying. It's cold, it's terrible. And so finally, after 30 minutes, for real, we finally get her. She pulls the lock. You hear the click, our moment of salvation. We pull the handle. Uh, Nothing happens except the car alarm starts going off. I don't know why that... I don't know why. I'm, su- I'm suing Toyota. We're in the process. So uh, we pull the alarm. the alarm. The alarm is now going off. Our kids are in the car. Our three-year-old is crying. My coffee is nowhere to be found. We're in the worst possible scenario. And Jen and I just looked at each other and started laughing. Because what else do you do? Uh, so while we were waiting on AAA to come rescue us, we just recounted the events of the day that started so well. And now our kids are locked in the car. And it's cold, and our neighbors hate us. How did we get here? That's what Paul does with the Galatians church. We started so well. How did we get so off base? And he takes them all the way back to their conversion. Look at verse 1 again. He says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, that is a really interesting verse. Because Galatia is about 500 miles from Jerusalem, and Galatians was written 15 years after Jesus was crucified, which means very likely this. Not one person reading this letter actually saw Jesus crucified. So what is Paul saying when he says, before your eyes, Jesus was portrayed as crucified? Another way to translate that would be to say, it became clear to you that there was a moment where the Galatians had heard what happened to Jesus. It was a major event in Jerusalem. They knew the facts of the gospel. Supposedly this guy was killed and then he rose again and he was a rabbi and taught a bunch of things. They knew the facts, but then through the preaching of the gospel, it became real to them. It was vividly portrayed for them. There's a moment in the life of every Christian where we begin this way. We've heard the gospel, we know it as facts, but the Spirit has to come in and make it real to us. To go from something that we know happened to something that totally transforms our lives. So I was with a um, former youth group student that I spent seven years with in middle school and high school. This happens all the time. It's a shot to my pride every single time. So the middle school, or they're in middle school anymore. They're well out of college. So I was with them. We were having coffee and um, they were like, hey, uh, I know that you always told us the gospel when we were in youth group, but then I went to this church and they like really told me the gospel. You know, they told me about this thing, justification. And it, have you, that's amazing, right? Like justification. And it's like, you know, you're like, oh, are you kidding me? Like years of my life, whatever. So you step back, take the pride out of it. What happened? That person had heard and heard and heard and heard, but then they saw. Because the Spirit made it clear to them. That's how we start. And the question is, has that happened for you? Is, is Christianity for you a bunch of facts about something that happened a long time ago in history? Or is it a vivid reality that transforms your life and you're willing to base your entire eternal destiny on it? And so that's what happens. And uh, there's no better example of this than Paul, right? I mean, I, I just, I was reading um, in, our, in our plan through Acts and you get to Acts 9 and I've heard the story so many times we did it in VBS, but man, if you just like, that story is amazing. What happens to Paul? Paul is 
uh, systematically after the church, right? He's dragging people out of their homes. He's putting people to death. He is adding to his moral record every day, serving God by destroying the church is his life's calling. He knows every, every fact there is to know about Jesus. Nobody knows more about Jesus than Paul. That's why he's doing what he's doing. And then he's on the road to Damascus, and what happens? Jesus himself shows himself to Paul, and in that moment, everything changes. Paul realizes, and he dedicates the rest of his life to telling anyone who will listen, <laughs> y'all, I was a Hebrew of Hebrew, a Benjamite, the Benjamite tribe, Benjaminite, I can't say that. Uh, I, did, I was a Pharisee as it came to the law. I did everything right. I had the moral record. I had the family record. I had the spiritual record. It counts for nothing. Jesus does it all. It's not based on our performance and what we bring to the table. In fact, that's a pile of you know what, uh, he says, that all that matters is what Jesus has done for us and the spirit showed it to me. He saw, he always knew, but then he saw that's how we begin. Something life-changing happens in our hearts when we finally realize that the gospel means we bring nothing to the table. Nothing. It is all about Jesus. Listen to what John Stott says. The gospel is not good advice to men, but good news about Christ. Not an invitation to us to do anything, but a declaration of what God has done. Not a demand, but an offer. It's a free gift, and none of it is dependent on your record. I mean, think about this. Who is less deserving to be in heaven than Paul? A guy who ravaged the church, who martyred Christians, who put people to death, who threw them in prison, who was zealously everything he could possibly be was anti-Jesus. Who deserves it less than Paul? He spends the next 30 years of his life preaching the gospel and then he dies and what happens? Just imagine this moment. Paul dies, he immediately enters into glory to the applause of the very men and women he killed. Because that's how the gospel works. And when they applauded him, they didn't say, you wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. You did an amazing job preaching Christ. They applauded because they said, how great is Jesus that even you could make it? Because the gospel is all about Jesus and all about what he's done and nothing about our performance. Who shows that better than Paul who deserves it least of anyone? And he understood that better than anyone. He was constantly talking about it. That's how the gospel works. And then Paul points us to Abraham, which feels like a weird transition to us. I'm going to talk about this very quickly. He says, um, hey, uh, Judaizers, you keep talking about Moses. Did you forget that there was somebody before Moses? I mean, Moses was great. But if we're going back to the beginning, let's go all the way back to Abraham. And he quotes from Genesis 15. And, and what happens in Genesis 15 is God has told Abraham again, hey, I'm going to give you a son. You're very, 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 very old. God's kind of brutal with Abraham on his age. He's constantly telling him how old he is. Uh, but he's like, you're very old, but I'm going to give you a son. Uh, if you can do it before you go to sleep, why don't you count how many stars are in the sky? This is pre-pollution and everything else. And so you just imagine that. That's how your offspring is going to be. Abraham 
could, could not change anything. He could not bring anything to the table. He could not get his wife pregnant. He, could, he, he contributed nothing. Uh, Genesis 15, 6, uh, quoted in Galatians 3. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What do we learn? At that crucial moment, we learn from the very beginning that Christianity is not a religion of performance, but a religion of promise. That it's not about what we bring to the table. It's about faith and what God does for us. And it says that God counts that faith in Abraham as righteousness. His account was credited with righteousness. Do you understand how different this is than any other belief system in the entire world, which basically says this, you look at your life And if your life is righteous, you can know that you're right with God. If your life is unrighteous, you can know that you're not right with God. And Christianity says, don't look at your life at all. Who are you putting your faith in? And if your faith is in Christ, the reality is you are both totally righteous and your life can be a disaster at the same time. That's how Christianity works. What gives us standing with God is Jesus and his righteousness into our account, not anything that we do. So I heard one pastor put it this way. He said, it's sort of like Paul is setting up the Judaizers and Abraham for a little discussion. And they're saying, hey, you got to obey the law of Moses. You got to be circumcised. You got to do all these things, right? And so um, he's like, hey, Judaizers, have a conversation with Abraham real quick. And they say to Abraham, hey, we heard that you got counted as righteous. That's a great thing. Well done. Um, how are we doing with the, uh, the holy days and the dietary restrictions? You keeping the law and all that? And Moses is like, I, God has not given me a law. No law exists. He just keeps promising me all these things. Okay, that's fine. Circumcision though, right? That had to be part of the equation. God said you were righteous because you've been circumcised, right? And Moses is like, I, I've never heard of circumcision in my life. That's two chapters later. He didn't say that because he didn't know that. Abraham's like, it's, it's, I don't know anything about that yet. And they're like, oh, that should probably be a conversation between you and God. That's not something I really want to talk about. What's the point? Abraham brought nothing to the table. There was no law to obey. There was nothing for him to contribute. He just believed. That's the gospel. That's how we began. And then secondly, how do we make progress? That's how we begin. How do we make progress? And this is a really big question, right? Because we all want to grow. And the reality is it's possible. Some of us have been Christians for a long time, and we still have as much anger as we did at the very beginning. And our addictions are still as real to us as they were at the start. And we still don't have self-control. And we still struggle with apathy and doubts and all sorts of sin. How do we grow? How do we change? How do we become more like Jesus? And Paul shows in Galatians 3 that the most likely reason we can't seem to grow is that we've fallen into the same trap that the Galatians have fallen into, which is basically this. We believe that we're justified by faith. But we think that we're sanctified by trying really, really hard. Justification is all about what God he, and what he's done. Sanctification is us and our effort. And we bring something to the table and we change ourselves. And so Paul says in verse 3 to those who think that way, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
Paul's saying the major mistake we make in wanting to grow is assuming that there's a difference between how we begin and how we make progress. But the way we grow as a Christian is the exact same way that we become a Christian. So let me show you three ways that we make progress very quickly and then we'll be done. If we want to make progress, we do it the same way that we begin. And to do it, we need three things. Number one, daily reliance. Daily reliance. There's this um, great moment in the gos- at the end of the Gospels and then the beginning of Acts that I think is one of the most crucial moments in Christianity that we often overlook. And what happens is Jesus has risen from the dead, right? He's about to ascend to the Father. The disciples have um, more excitement than they've ever had. They have more boldness than they've ever had. They've got a message to share, right? They are ready to get going and tell anybody who will listen what's happened. But, and Jesus has given his final instructions. And what does he say? Don't do a thing. Don't even leave the city until the spirit comes. I think Jesus would say the exact same thing to us. Don't do a thing. Don't you take a step out of that bed until you realize your dependence on the spirit to do anything you're about to do today. The big question for us is this, the way that we're currently approaching life, do we even need the Holy Spirit? Do we even need the Holy Spirit? Or like Hazel Motes, have we figured out a way to do life apart from the presence of God at all? It's what the Galatians did. And what we have to ask is moment by moment, would we say that we're learning to live in a way that's spirit-reliant or self-dependent? And Paul's trying to show the Galatians how subtle this is. Because you have to realize, on the surface, the actions look the same. These are people trying to live very moral, upstanding, God-obedient lives, right? These are people serious about their faith. And what he's saying is, it's not so much about what you do, but the spirit in which you do them. So, for us, it's possible to teach Sunday school, to preach a sermon to give to the poor, to preach the gospel to people, to do any number of religious things that we do and do it in two different ways. One is self-reliant, where we're doing it in our own power, with our own resources, for our own glory, to make our standing with God just go a little bit more in our favor. There's also a way to do it where we say, God, I'm totally dependent on you. I have no resources on my own. I need the Spirit to empower me to do anything that I'm about to do today. So we can either do things in self-reliance in our own strength or in humble reliance on the Spirit. So let me give you um, two, two just quick ways this shows up in things we say. Uh, a lot of you are going to have said these phrases before. This is not to guilt you or whatever. It's just to show you how easily we do this, where we move into self-reliance and not depend on the spirit. So we say things like this, God helps those who help themselves. What are we saying when we say it? That was Ben Franklin, by the way, that's not a Bible, a Bible verse, but we often think it is. God helps those that help themselves. What are we saying? Hey, figure it out on your own. And then God will come in and help a little bit at the end. (laughs) The whole point of the gospel is that God helps those who cannot help themselves, right? who realize that they are totally helpless. That's the whole point. Another one is God will not give you more than you can handle. Man, 
I don't know about y'all, but like to wake up this morning and Jesus tells me to die to myself and take up my cross and love my family and not be selfish. In the first five minutes of my day, I've already got more than I can handle. I cannot do that. All of life is more than I can handle. That's why I need the Spirit. It's why I need the Spirit to come and give me the ability to do what Jesus has called me to do because without it, life is overwhelming. The good news of the gospel is not you have all the resources you need to handle life. The good news of the gospel is that life will constantly overwhelm you, but God has all the resources you need. Secondly, the way we grow, the way we make progress is to realize our, we have a growing need. We have a growing need. Um, one of the subtle dangers of the Christian life is uh, we think that Christian maturity looks like needing Jesus less as we grow. But Christian maturity actually looks like realizing more and more and more just how much we need Jesus. So look at this in the life of Paul. He says in AD 55 in 1 Corinthians that he's the least of all the apostles. That's pretty humble. You're like, you know, towards the bottom, but that's a pretty select group. Five years later in Ephesians 3, I'm the least of all the saints. Two years later, 1 Timothy 1, I'm the chief of all sinners. You see what's happening in Paul's life? He's growing more and more and more aware of his need for Jesus because he's realizing just how bad it is. Is Paul becoming less mature or more mature? More. That's how you make progress. You realize your need for Jesus. And then lastly, we have to rediscover the gospel. I'm going to read you this long quote from Tim Keller, and then we'll be done. We make progress by rediscovering the gospel. Tim Keller says, we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something that is more advanced. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but the A to Z of Christianity. It's not just the minimum required doctrine to enter the kingdom, but the way we make progress in the kingdom. The gospel is the way we grow. It's the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier. It's very common in the church to think as follows. The gospel is for non-Christians. One needs it to be saved, but once you're saved, you go th- grow through hard work and obedience. But hard work that is arising from the, not arising from the gospel will not sanctify you. It will strangle you. All our problems come from a failure to apply the gospel. The main problem then in the Christian life is not that we have thought out the deep implications of the gospel. It's that we have not used the gospel in and on all parts of our lives. Most people's problems are just a failure to be oriented to the gospel, a failure to grasp and believe it through and through. Luther says, most necessary is it that we know the gospel well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. The gospel is not easily comprehended. Paul says the gospel does its renewing work in us so that we understand it in all its truth. All of us, to some degree, live around the truth of the gospel, but do not get it. And then listen to this last line. The key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal and revival is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. We never leave it. The way we make progress in the faith is the same way we began. What you need more than anything today is for Jesus crucified and all that the gospel means to become clear to you again and to believe it and apply it to every area of your life. It's how we start, 
It's how we grow. Let's pray together.